This evening we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 17, please. So Exodus chapter 17, just as you turn there, I'd also like to offer my own words of welcome. So Exodus chapter 17, and we're going to commence from verse 8 and read down to the end of the chapter. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out, men, and go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and the people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah and Nisai. For he said, Because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Amen. And we know the Lord will bless his word to all our hearts. Let's just still ourselves once again, please, and ask for help, even as we come to consider what lies before us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee once again for the great privilege to have the Word of the living God. And Lord, even as we've been considering in the Bible class, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, and clear Word. And we thank Thee, Lord, for the Holy Ghost, the one who comes, the one who is given to guide us into all truth. And we pray, O God, that He, the author of the book, will come, and that He will be our teacher and instructor, he will be the one who will open our heart and open the word that we asked of thee. Come, O God, and teach us and help us and lead us, even, Lord, in the time of prayer later on. We pray for your blessing now to come. I need thy help. Lord, take from my mind and anything that is not pleasing to thee and fill me with thy spirit and help me speak as thou would have me to speak to this and these thy dear people. So, Lord, do us good now and shut us in. And take away distraction, elevate even the lethargy of our minds and our bodies. And give us attentiveness to the word to hear what our God would have to say. So these things we ask in Jesus' name with an eye for his praise and thine everlasting glory. Amen. We live in a country that is familiar with banners. And I would venture to say that we have the highest concentration of banners per head than anywhere else in the world. It has been suggested that the significance of banners in Northern Irish culture influenced the operational name of the British Army's campaign in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, which was called Operation Banner. Of course, the highest percentage of banners belong to the Protestant orders. But there are other groupings that have their banners, such as trade unions and religious organizations. Most banners, they are painted by professionals on silk 
Although canvas was used and a popular material in the past, the banners that we're familiar with, well, they have depicted on them different subjects, such as a reformer, a Bible and a crown, a local landmark, or some biblical story. Well, tonight we're going to think of a more glorious banner, a more glorious banner. In recent weeks, we have been looking at the compound names of Jehovah the Lord. We've already considered Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, and also Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that healeth thee. Now tonight we move on to the third compound name that is revealed in Scripture. Now only a few weeks had passed since the children of Israel had left Marah, the place where the bitter waters were healed, uh, until they reached the place of Rephidim. And this is the place where the Lord revealed Himself to them as Jehovah Nissi, or the Lord my banner. And that's really the, the heading and the title of the message this evening, The Lord My Banner. We're going to consider it under two headings tonight. And first of all, there is the setting once again. We've thought about that before, but we're going to think about the setting. There's always a context that helps us understand the meaning intended and the meaning that the author wanted to convey to us. The children of Israel, as I said, they have gone from Marah to the place of refreshment and rest at Elam. And from there, they journey to the wilderness of Sin. And in the wilderness of sin, they once again murmur against Moses. And this time it was because there was no food, and they longed for the flesh pots of Egypt. God in grace, and in spite of their grumbling, provided them with manna from heaven and also with quails. We then read that they left the wilderness of sin, and they came to Rephidim. And once again, the people, they found no water to drink. And once again, the murmur went up even questioning the presence of the Lord among them, as we read in verse 7, but we didn't read it tonight. But they did question, is the Lord among us or not? And that just shows how deep unbelief can be seated in the heart. After the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the healing of the waters at Marah, the manna from heaven and the quails, the people still doubted God, even after the miraculous was performed in front of them. Now, God in His long-suffering, and with a mind to His overarching purpose of redemption, it has to be said, He directed Moses to take the rod that was in His hand and smite the rock, which He did, and the waters gushed forth, quenching the thirst of a multitude of people. And that brings us to verse 8, where we began our reading tonight. Then came Amalek and thought with, the, uh, with Israel in Rephidim. Now, who are the Amalekites? Well, they were the most powerful nomadic tribe in the Sinai Peninsula. The descendants of Amalek, they were, who was the grandson of Esau, as we're told in Genesis 36 and verse 12. Esau, as you know, was Jacob's twin, and he was a man who despised the holy things of God and sold his birthright, his spiritual birthright, for a bowl of stew. And it might have been thought that being closely related to Israel, the Amalekites would have been a help to them on their pilgrimage and their journey, but instead they became a persistent enemy, the proverbial thorn in the flesh for Israel and for God's people. Balaam said of them in Numbers 24 and verse 20 that Amalek was the first of the nations. And the meaning there is that they were the first nation to make war with Israel. Years later, Moses called on Israel to remember what the Amalekites did to them 
along the way. And centuries even after that, the prophet Samuel, he came to King Saul with a commission from the Lord to destroy the Amalekites. But we know that he failed, sparing King Agag. And the bitter irony of a just retribution was that the young man who slew Saul was himself an Amalekite. Now, this scene in Exodus chapter 17, it's not recorded in in Scripture simply to amuse or to interest a lover of history, but it's written for our edification. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. And this continuous fight with Amalek and Israel between them both, and the beginnings of which we read here, is a metaphor for that constant and daily fight which God's people must carry on with the evil without and the sin that is within. There's a consensus among the expositors that the Amalekites, well, they can be representative of all the forces that are opposed to God's people throughout all the ages, normally categorized as the world, the flesh, and the devil. But being a descendant of Esau, who had, as you know, that fleshly desire for the pottage, they are predominantly seen as a type of the flesh. That is the evil, corrupt uh, nature that we have. One man, he made this comment, the Amalekites are a perfect illustration of the sin that remains in the believer's life. That sin, already utterly defeated at the cross, must be dealt with ruthlessly, or it will revive and continue to plunder and pillage the believer's heart and sap them of their spiritual strength. They cannot be merciful with their agag, or indwelling sin will turn and try to devour them. Now, dealing with the setting here, that's who the Amalekites are coming to war with Israel. I want us to think about the timing of the attack. As I said, we can't ignore the context. We notice that the attack came when Israel was in the enemy's territory. The attack occurred approximately two months after the exodus, towards the end of May or early June, when the Bedouins, that's the traveling people, they left the lower plains in order to find pasture for their flocks in the cooler heights. Now, the approach of the Israelites would obviously attract notice. And good pasture was in this area, as confirmed by the fact that Moses, he was shepherding his flock in this area when the Lord called him at the burning bush. And moved by suspicion, the Amalekites, they resented the presence of such a multitude. And the enemy's fury was aroused by the presence of God's people upon contested ground. So as long as God's people stay out of the enemy's territory, they can expect little conflict. Now, how do we apply this? Well, the flesh. The flesh will say to you maybe this evening, do not pray. You've never prayed before publicly. Do not attend all the meetings. You know you're tired. You've been very busy. You need a rest. Do not give up that one sin because it's pleasing to the senses. And as soon as the Spirit moves the child of God into these contested areas that the flesh seeks to war against, well, then the battle begins. The resistance comes. So you can expect that tonight. The flesh will say to you, well, don't pray. You've never prayed before. Well, that's when the attack comes from the enemy. When you move into the devil's territory. The attack also came when these Israelites were engaged in carnality. 
not only in the devil's territory, but also in carnality. They were murmuring and complaining at the lack of water. And a bad spirit was among them, a woe is me attitude, a pessimistic outlook. All these things are against me, and they were going to die. That's what they thought. And this is when the enemy of the child of God will seek to exploit that weakness to its advantage. And so we see the timing of the attack. But we also have the tactics in the attack. And we have this, a record of this in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and the verse 17. So Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 17. We have the, the tactics of the Amalekites. And this is what Moses, this is what he's saying to them uh, years later. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. And he tells them, remember what Amalek did to thee by the way. When ye were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost off thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. It appears that the Amalekites, he first carried out a sort of harassing guerrilla campaign against Israel before they came out in the open pitched battle against them. And in this we see the enemy's subtlety. And this is something we're not to be surprised at because we read in Genesis 3 verse 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the Amalekites, we read there in Deuteronomy 25, they attacked the hindmost, those nearest the rear, furthest behind. And we are to be careful that we don't turn out to be back row Christians. Now, I'm not talking about those who are literally sitting in the back row tonight. But I'm speaking about those who follow afar off. Just as Peter did. As we read in Mark chapter 14 in the verse 54. And because of that, he became an easy prey for the enemy. And those who are on the peripheries of the work, the periphery of the fellowship and, and the meetings, they make themselves easy prey for the enemy. So we have the subtlety here in the attack, but also look at the vulnerability of the ones that Amalek attacked. We read there in Deuteronomy 25 verse 18 that he came to the feeble, the faint, and the weary. Do you know, we see the same principle in, in nature in those wildlife documentaries. That's the one the predator will seek. You see, there's no mercy with the enemy. The enemy will attack the young and the faith. The saint who's weary from labor and the, and the sick. With all sorts of accusing thoughts and temptations. And this is the tactic of the devil. And we're not to be ignorant of his devices we're to be on the lookout for those among us who may be feeble, faint, and weary and pray for them, encourage them, and help them in order that they might not be back row Christians. And that responsibility lies upon us all. If we see someone drifting away, flagging backwards, they're maybe not out at the meetings, well, it's a responsibility of us all because they become an easy prey for the enemy. So we have the timing of the attack and the tactics in the attack. But in this setting, we think about the triumph over the attack. And this really takes the bulk of this passage. In verse 9, in Exodus 17, Moses appoints Joshua to respond to this attack of the Amalekites to choose out men and to go out and fight. Now, we know nothing else about Joshua at this point. 
Later we find out that he find out that he is the son of Nun. He's really a, a tribal chief. He's Moses' right-hand man, and he is a designated successor. But we only hear, hear, read here that Moses, uh, Moses said to Joshua. And that's all we know about this man at the moment. And as Israel would engage with the enemy, Moses tells Joshua that he will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in his hand. We know with hindsight that the battle was won. And the battle was won in the place of intercession, for that is really the focus of the passage. While it was necessary for Joshua to fight with the enemy, the essential and vital aspect was Moses upon the mount. Hence, that's what our attention is drawn to by the Holy Ghost. We read nothing of Joshua's tactics or the men of Israel's skill in war, only that they prevailed when the arms of Moses were held up. Moses standing upon a hill with uplifted hands has been generally thought of as interceding with God. In the lifting up of the hands in Scripture, it's often used as a synonym for praying or for prayer. And I want us to note some key elements in Moses' intercession and how they relate to and instruct us in our own intercession. Now we see the position of intercession, he went to the top of the hill. He went to the top of the hill. It was an elevated position. And you and I, through Christ Jesus, can ascend into the hill of the Lord, into the holy place, as Psalm 24, verse 3 puts it. And that's where God's throne is, a throne of grace. We have access into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by that new and living way. The believer's position is an elevated position for we're seated with Christ in heavenly places as Ephesians 2 verse 6 tells us. We pray from a spiritual vantage point over the enemy because we're praying, we're praying uh, at the throne of grace. And we know that that defeated foe is being put under Christ's footstool. So we have this position of intercession But we also see the persistence of intercession. The battle commenced in the morning. Joshua was told to go the next day. And we read that Moses continued all day until the going down of the sun. Moses prayed until the victory was secured, sometimes referred to as praying through. Moses grew weary in his persistence. An indication that labor and length was involved in his intercession. F.B. Meyer, he said, prayer is labor. Without doubt, prayer of the right kind means strenuous and exhausting labor. It is the most exhausting exercise that a soul can possibly sustain. And it's been often said that we do not read of Joshua's hands growing heavy in fighting, but we read of Moses' hands growing heavy in his interceding. Matthew Henry, he commented, the more spiritual any service is, the more apt we are to feel and flag in it. Praying work, if done with due intensity of mind and vigor of affection, will be found hard work. And though the spirit be willing, the flesh will be weak. Another point to note, not only the position, the persistence, but the partnership of intercession. Moses was not alone on the mount. 
Aaron and her were with them, and they, they were invaluable in that ministry of intercession as they held up Moses' hands when he grew weary. It was only natural, for he was only a man, a, a mighty man, yes, but just a man. And the Apostle Paul desired of God's people that they would strive with him in prayer. As we heard on Sunday morning in the early morning prayer meeting, Romans 15, verse 20, or sorry, verse 30, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Reverend Wagner, he needs us to hold him up in prayer. There is a power in agreed praying, as we read in Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 and 20, again I say unto you, the words of Christ, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And there's so much material in the book of Acts concerning the united prayers of the early church and the great impact they had. And then we have the power of intercession. Verse 11. It tells us there, And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. And then verse 13, And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of his sword. It has been said, When men work, men work. But when men pray, God works. And that is why this week of prayer is so vital to the Bible con conference. It's why our midweek prayer meetings and our prayer meetings before the service on a Sunday, they're so vital. Yes, a preacher needs to prepare to put in the effort to do the work, to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God with all its might. But if it's not bathed in prayer and backed with intercession, well, then effort is not simply enough. We could preach until the veins are popping in our neck or we're blue in the face to use the expression. If we want God to work, and I know we all do, if we want God to work in the Bible conference and our Sunday evening service, well, then we need to intercede. That's where the victory is won. When men pray, God works. The prayers of Moses were greater than any army. And it is not what Mary, Queen of Scots, intimated concerning the prayers of John Knox. I feared John Knox's prayers more than all the assembled armies of Europe, is what she said. When the battle was won, the Lord gave Moses a message to write in the book concerning the Amalekites, as we read in verse 14. After which Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nassai, the Lord, my banner. So that's the setting. But secondly and finally this evening, because we want to get to prayer, we have the significance. The significance of the revelation of God in this name. And surely there is more to this account than simply instruction concerning our intercession. Well, of course there is. The general significance of what Moses is doing here is clear. There is one common denominator between this account that we have read and the previous story in the chapter. And what is that common account? Well, it is the rod, the rod of God. The rod of God 
is center stage. And Moses is removed from the battle and he goes up to the top of the hill in order that the rod itself becomes the focus point or the focal point of Israel. It is held up. It is the rod that is held up as a banner in the hand of Moses. And it's symbolic of the presence and the power of God. It stood for God's cause. The banner in ancient times was not necessarily like the ones that we picture in our minds. Often it was a bare pole with a bright shining ornament that glittered in the sun on top of it. And the Hebrew word nisai, from which we get the word banner, it comes from a root word which means to glisten, to be conspicuous from afar. And it's translated a number of other ways in Scripture, such as pole, ensign, or standard. And as an ensign or a standard, it was a rallying point for the people, something that their eye would be drawn towards, that they could fix their eye upon. Now, time is pressing us tonight as we consider the significance of the revelation of God as Jehovah Nissi, the Lord, our banner. But we can say this, Christ is the banner of His people. He is the one who is the manifestation and the personification of God's presence because He is Emmanuel. And that's what the rod signified, the presence of God. And so Christ is our banner. We read in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10, a prophecy concerning Him. The Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah 11, verse 10, And it shall come to pass in that day, sorry, verse 10, And in that day shall there be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign. There's that word, of the people, to it shall a Gentile seek, and his rest shall be glorious. When Moses lifted up the the brazen serpent in the wilderness, so that all that were bitten by the serpents might look and live. The word used for pole on which that serpent was raised is that word Nisai, banner. The Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 in the verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the Lord makes reference to that again in John chapter 12 and verse 32. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And both those verses were referring to how he would die. Lifted up in crucifixion. So the cross work of Christ is our banner. It is our banner. It is the ensign for the child of God. For we know that at the cross, Christ triumphed over his and our enemies. You know, this is emphasized by the fact that Moses called the name of the altar Jehovah Nassai. And so the cross work of Christ is our banner. And the significance in this account is that Jesus Christ, the further significance is Jesus Christ is the great anti-type of Moses here. He is the prophet whom the Lord God raised up from the midst of his people. He is the one who has ascended into the hill of the Lord and is now in heaven with upraised hands. He is the one who is the great intercessor of his people. And he gave a preview of his now ongoing ministry 
heavenly ministry of intercession when he said this to Peter, Behold, Satan hath desired to have thee, that he might sift thee as wheat, but I have prayed for thee. And Christ now he ever lives to make intercession for us, and he does so by uplifting his finished work of the cross as the basis for his intercession. And he is heard in heaven because of the speaking blood. Unlike Moses, however. And we must remember that the type, it always breaks down at some point. Unlike Moses, our great high priest, he never grows weary because he lives in the power of an endless life. And Christ has no partners in heaven in his ministry of intercession. John Macduff said this, as a solitary surety on earth, he is the solitary intercessor above. No other voice pleads with the Father. No other priest or minister, saint or angel, can be of any avail on our behalf. Yes, Moses was there in partnership with Aaron and her, holding up his hands, but Christ is our great high priest alone in glory. He is our intercessor, away with all these other mediators that Rome would claim, because there is none. Christ alone is the one who is qualified. He alone is the only mediator between God and man. The Lord's cause. And here's another difference. Because in the battlefield there was times when Amalek prevailed. But the Lord's cause is always advancing. It's always prevailing because of Christ's effectual intercession it's always going forward. He is building His church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It was McShane who said, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And the victory is assured, brethren and sisters, as we battle with the enemy, hot and fierce though it may be, battling with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have the knowledge that there's one who is praying for us in the most holy place, not made with hands. And that makes our intercession here on earth not a pointless exercise. It makes our battles for him not a worthless endeavor. You've heard it say that we're not fighting for the victory, but we're fighting in the victory. But we could also say we're not praying for the victory, but we're praying in the victory. And this is the victory, whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We are praying in the victory. You know, there's much in this portion and I've really only skimmed over tonight thinking about the setting and the significance. But what encouragement we have here to pray. The Lord is our banner. Christ is the one to whom we look. The work of the cross, that finished work, guarantees our success and the success of His everlasting kingdom. And so may the Lord bless His word to our hearts tonight for His own name's sake. We're praying in the victory.
And we're not praying for the victory. And this is where the battle will be won for the conference and for every ministry, even of this local congregation.